Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I'm developing. And in my endeavor of gathering research for the era of 1937 to 1957, I have come across so many wonderful people. And today's show is no different when I bring on uh, the former Giants bat boy, Ed Logan Jr. Ed, thank you very, very much for joining me. Oh, you're more than welcome, Sam, and I'm uh, delighted to be here. Now, let's get right into it. Um, tell tell uh, the listeners a little bit before we go into a uh, tangent from baseball. Tell some of the listeners about uh, uh, the, the world of baseball that you grew up in and, and uh, who your father was and, and the life uh, of, your, uh, of your family in baseball. Yes. Um, my grandfather, Fred Logan, uh, Frederick Wheatley Logan, something I didn't know until much later, uh, was the Yankee clubhouse manager from the time they had the Yankees until he died in 1946. Um, he had five children, one of whom was my dad, Eddie, Eddie Sr., and he grew up in the Yankee clubhouse, and uh, in those days, actually, the Logans ran both clubhouses, the Giants and the Yankees, and eventually my dad took over the Polo Grounds uh, clubhouse, and he was with the Giants all the way through San Francisco until 19, he retired in 1979. Um, I grew up in um, basically the Polo Grounds uh, because uh, after my grandfather died in 46, uh, he had hired uh, uh, Pete Shahey, who became famous uh, all the way into, I guess, the early 90s um, in in the Yankees clubhouse. And I eventually um, became the Bat Boy in the last season, 1957, before we moved to San Francisco. And I... uh, would have been the bat boy in San Francisco in 1958, but I had to stay in high school, music and art in uh, New York, graduated in June, and by the time I got out to San Francisco, Dad had already hired Roy uh, Kirscher, who I just hooked up with 50 years later, turned out to be a great guy, but I <laughs> I really had a burr under my saddle against him all these years, and I, it was unnecessary. He took so, my job. Uh, he took my job. <laughs> he took my job. And then uh, my brother at, uh, was the Sacramento Solons um, clubhouse manager for a number of years, and then uh, he was the first Seattle Mariners clubhouse manager for one year. So we had it. We had it, you know, in our blood. But my dad said to me, "No, you're not. Uh, you know, you you've got the smarts, so you're going to college. You're going to break the cycle here. You're not going to his <laughs> his." This phrase was, you're not going to hang up jockstraps for a living. So, yeah. uh, and I, so I went on to college, and uh, the rest is history. I had a completely different uh, uh, career, although obviously baseball is in my blood, and I've followed it ever since. 
Now, speaking of other careers, you were in the military for a bit, and with it coming up with the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination come up, you have a poignant story to tell. Yes, I do. And, you know, there's that uh, six degrees from Kevin Bacon that people know about where you mention something and you can be tied to it. Well, in my life, uh, it seems to be two or three degrees. And this is true. OBJ and President Nixon and, and even Carter down the road. But here's the story. I uh, graduated Arizona State University, and the reason I went here was the Giants had spring training all these years, and we'll get into that later on. But um, I was commissioned in the Air Force and uh, had my degree the same day, June 1, 1962. The Air Force um, sent me to OSI school, the Office of Special Investigations, where I became a special agent. Uh, similar to NCIS, if you watch that on TV, or FBI, or CIA, for that matter. And uh, so that summer, I went to OSI school in Washington, D.C., and uh, got my badge in September. Um, found was stationed in Detroit uh, at an OSI office running background investigations for clearances when we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, uh, of course, uh, President Kennedy was my commander-in-chief at that time, and... Uh, we thought we were going to have World War III, and what happened was the Air Force uh, dispersed bombers from the from like Montana and so forth around the country. One, so the Russians couldn't find them. Two, in case we had to go to war in Cuba, and so they sent them to the Detroit airport. So working all day, um, and then I had to go out and guard guard the planes at night, the nuclear planes. So that was my introduction to the Air Force. A year and a month later, almost to the day, um, we had uh, JFK's assassination. By that time, I was back in Ohio. Uh, so my, and we thought we were going to war, too. I don't know if people remember, but that was a very sad time. There were, uh, there were no lights at Thanksgiving or the holidays or Hanukkah or, or Christmas. Very sad time. Then they sent me to Okinawa. And... Uh, while I was in Okinawa in 1965, LBJ, you know, up the war in Vietnam, and uh, and the rest is history with Vietnam. But let's forward to uh, about 68. Uh, let's, yeah, 1968. Um, there was the Chicago Convention, um, Democratic Convention, and LBJ was supposed to come to that. And I was in charge of 50 OSI agents who were there to augment the Secret Service in case he showed up. And if you remember, those were the days of rage, uh, the whole thing in front of the Hilton Hotel down, um, downtown Chicago, which I witnessed. And then we go to, uh, for, you know, the reward for that was to go to Vietnam for a year. But then I came back um, into uh, the heart of LBJ country, ironically. And that was uh, Austin, Texas. I commanded the OSI unit at uh, Bergstrom Air Force Base. Well, that was where LBJ flew in, flew out. Um, his family flew in and flew out while he was still president. Then they, he, uh, he, you know, he decided not to run. He never show up in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in Chicago. So um, they went ahead and uh, built his library on the campus of the University of Texas, and. Uh, President Nixon, uh, General Westmoreland, half of the Supreme Court, uh, half of the, all of Congress, all flew to Bergstrom Air Force Base. And my job, along with um, the whole entourage of agents, was to help the Secret Service, you know, 
meet them at the plane and get them off base. So I did that, and then lo and behold, LBJ dies. And uh, they bring his body out to the base, and they fly him to D.C., and he lies in state, and then they fly the body back. And, And here's where it gets interesting. I'm at the VIP lounge uh, waiting for the body with, uh, with the wing commander. And, um, he, and he's got his radio and everything. And he turns to me and says, uh, Ed, did you know where uh, JFK was coming? You know, when he was shot, he was on the way. Where do, you, where do you think his next stop was? And I said, I have no idea. And he says, right here, right at this spot where his successor is coming in dead. I mean, you talk about a uh, General Patton movie moment. Um, really weird. Now, and and all these documentaries in the last couple of weeks about 72 hours before JFK was killed, um, they have finally shown that itinerary. And sure enough, it says right there, Bergstrom Air Force Base. <laughs> then um, a number of years later, um, I happened to be working in L.A. when Nixon died, and I went to his funeral, this time as a spectator. But I did go up. But, you know, see the coffin and everything. And, uh, you know, those ties are, have been there this whole time. It's, you know, obviously it is outside of the, the specific era that I'm looking at in terms of 1937 to 1957, but as a, an aspiring screenwriter, any type of story about humanity is just something that I eat up, and, and I very much appreciate you sharing that. Uh, we we have a couple callers on on the line right now, and uh, one of them I recognize the number, but the other number I don't recognize. So I'm going to bring on that the unrecognizable number first to see who this is, and it's with the 732 area code. Hello, you're here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hey Eddie, Mo Resner. Mo, how are you, buddy? All right, it's good hearing the the descriptions and the history. So. Uh... That's great. I just, and it was a good excuse to say hello again. Hello, Mo. It's very nice to have you on. I know you called when uh, Steve was on last, and it's, it, it, you had so yes. many great stories to tell, and we appreciate you calling in once more. Yeah. Mo and I were actually on the field the last game of the, uh, the Giants' 57 season. Of course, we didn't know each other from Adam. Years later, uh, we hooked up when Mo discovered that film and, and eventually uh, made a DVD. And uh, you talk about historical. Uh, it's now in the Hall of Fame, and the, the Giants front office has it, and um, nobody knew about it. Mo, you know the story. Yeah, I, you know, I took a, I took a photographs of the last game. I had my camera by accident. Uh, the, all the major papers were there. They only had snapshot cameras. I had a a color uh, uh, to real, a 16 millimeter. So I took the, the movies, ceremonies on the field, pictures of you, Carl Hubble, Bill Rigney, Willie Mays, all of them. And I, yeah, Mrs. I, uh, I, I put it together and put it away for half a century until I got the call from the Giants, the New York uh, you know, Preservation Society. Why don't you show it? So I transferred it from real to real to DVD. And the next thing I know, the New York Times was there. They put it in the paper, my picture. Then it went to the Hall of Fame. And then you and I got to to know each other. And we went to AT&T Park where we were honored. And they showed part of the DVD on the big screen. <laughs> yeah, there's a piece of that on YouTube. It's only about 57 seconds long, well. 
Uh, yeah. But I've copied down your number, and, and besides having you on for your own your very own show sometime, I'd love to, if possible, get some more footage of that video. Yeah, well, I'll have to print a few and just send it to you. There's 40 minutes. Excellent, excellent. It's, yeah, it's I, music, I have, it's documented. Um, well, I, I very uh, much Eddie, appreciate it. And, yeah, and Eddie, do I'm you have... To, did, yeah. No, go uh, ahead, Mo. Uh, give me your address, and I'll send it. Okay, I, I'm going to call you after the show, and I'll give you my address. Oh, very good. In the meantime, Eddie, did you see the new cover with Willie Mays' endorsement? Yes, I saw that. That's great. That, that's a point I'd like to make, Sam, that uh, mm-hmm. I was Willie Mays' uh, bat boy in New York. I was 16. He's 26. Uh, he's a, he's uh, 10 years and a month older than me, and I've followed that my whole life. He's, he's now 82, and I'm 72. And his eyes are failing, but I've seen him uh, this year in spring training, and I have his. his, his I had him autograph um, a number of things, but the, the latest one is the book by Dr. Larry Hogan about my my family, which came out earlier yeah. this year, and the whole history of baseball. The, the gist of it was between my grandfather and my father, um, Pete Shahey and uh, Mike Murphy. They incur- they cover the entire history of baseball, and Mike Murphy's still there. Yeah, uh, I saw Larry. I met Larry for the first time last night at um, uh, If It Ain't Got That Swing, Black Baseball and Jazz in the 1930s, and it was this fantastic presentation um, up at uh, the Schomburg Library uh, for research for black culture, and it just discussed kind of the parallels of, of uh, black music and, and black baseball and, and how the, the two were huge fans of each other and, and the way it links up and, and also from the theoretical standpoint as well. It was a fantastic presentation. Um, I'm, I'm blanking right now on the name of the other speaker other than Jimmy Robinson, who was a, a Negro League baseball player from Harlem. Um, but I know the, the name of the guy was Robert, and I'm trying to I – have, I have his information. I want to get his last name for you guys right now, um, as well as Mr. Hogan. Uh, Robert yes, um, Fornick. His name was Dr. Robert Chabornick. Chabornick, thank you. I have the flyer here in front of me. Uh, yeah, it was really a spectacular evening, and I wish you all had been able to come. Yeah. Well, Larry and I presented the book twice at, at the Hall of Fame, the preview of it and then the book itself, and did a book signing up there. And what we're trying to do, uh, Sam, and I hope – your listeners get behind this is um, is have a a display or a tribute to the clubhouse managers and even the bad boys and that is getting some traction at, at the Hall of Fame. Oh, that's great! And and the book is 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 kind of pulling that forward. Well, I know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to purchase the book last night, but I will certainly be picking it up uh, as soon as I get a chance to. I have uh, Willie Mays' uh, signature right on the front of it. I uh, I got that at you know spring training this year, and I do see him every year. And of course, Mike Murphy and I go all the way back to when we were 17 years old, and he's now is I think his 54th year as clubhouse manager. My dad hired him, of course. Oh, that's that's remarkable. Wow. Uh, uh, Mo, I'm going to keep you on, but I'm also going to bring on. Uh, a, a lovely woman named Perry Barber. Perry. Perry. 
Terry, how are you? <laughs> it's like old home week here. I was just about Hi, to Dan. say that. Hi, Perry. Now, we Perry, are, give we our, are... our listeners a little introduction to your background, not only with the Giants, but in baseball. Well, this is not about me. It's about Ed. Thank you, Sam. I'll be very brief. We are all very close friends. We are all devoted New York Giants fans. And because of my love for the Giants, uh, and actually Mo and I met, what was it, 30 years ago, Mo, when he was playing in a baseball league and I was umpiring. (laughs) And strangely enough, we're friends, fast friends 30 years later. I met Ed through my um, membership in the New York Giants Preservation Society, and we've also become fast friends. Um, I do so admire you, Eddie, uh, and I'm waiting for your book to come out. (laughs) because you have so many amazing stories. And, you know, the timely and and topical nature of the stories you were just telling about President Kennedy were, I was getting goose pimples listening to it, you know, because the 50-year anniversary is tomorrow. And it's just um, really amazing hearing about your, your, you know, your uh, special memories of that time. So thank you for sharing them with us. And... um, Yes, I've I've been umpiring for 30 years, Sam, and I've umpired every level of baseball all over the world, including Major League Spring Training. Um, as you know, because I told you recently, there has never been a woman yet to umpire a, a regular season Major League Baseball game. But I've done it every year for the last 28 years, I think, down in Florida, um, umpired Major League Baseball games during spring training. So um, I, I have hope and there there are signs that things are about to change and that we will be seeing more women in professional baseball in the in the very near future so I'm very optimistic about that and that um, Eddie, be, I'm sorry yeah go ahead yeah I, I wanted to uh, tell you you something that you and I had never discussed and when you mentioned it I just got such a charge because my great uncle Jim McLaughlin played for the San Francisco Solons. And oh, he okay. had he had one at bat in the major leagues, just like Moonlight Graham from Field of Dreams. He's in the baseball encyclopedia, you can look him up, James McLaughlin from Rockford, Illinois. And he had one at bat, wound up with point oh oh you know, actually I think he, he didn't come to bat, he just played a half an inning in the outfield and that was it. And then he went back to the San Francisco Solons, where he played, I think he spent 20 years with them. He was like a lifer with them, because back then there were, you know, lifelong major league players, especially out there, where the AAA league was very much major league caliber. They had players like, you know, Dom and Joe DiMaggio, and some really fantastic players out there. You said he was from Rockford, Illinois? Yes, uh uh-huh. Rockford, Illinois. Hey, Perry. Perry, this yes, is the no. same story. This is the same story as Nick Testy. He had one game and didn't get up at the plate. He was a yeah, catcher. Yeah, there are a few wow. of those. So, and oh, just um, my other association, Sam, with Mo is that he had the excellent taste to use a song that I wrote a long time ago when I was a musician and a wandering troubadour. I wrote many songs about baseball, and Mo had the good taste to use one on the soundtrack for the video. So thank you, Mo. Oh, okay. Perfect. That's, 
<laughs> well, uh, we so will I, be getting more into uh, Perry's line of work on uh, other other podcasts. I also want to get her on my uh, next major league podcast, Rising Apple Report, and talk about the uh, the state of umpiring in baseball and the state of of women umpiring in baseball and professional baseball. Perry, I, I very much appreciate you coming on, and, and uh, you as well, Mo. We're, we're going to get some Thanks. stories from Ed now um, about yeah, uh, his time you. with the, uh, the Giants. Uh, but, I, again, I very much appreciate you guys adding to the, the, uh, the, the, the tales. All right. Love you, Eddie. I'll see you soon. Love you, too, Perry. And, okay. Mo, hey, you'll remember. I'm still on. <laughs> Go ahead, Terry. Go ahead. Tell a story about the Bobby Thompson home run ball, about the guy oh, that yeah. showed up with it the next day. <laughs> the guy. Exactly. That was a wild time. Um, Bobby Thompson came running into the clubhouse uh, after he, you know, the game was over, and he, he said to my dad that they called him Eddie or Logan. Said, oh, "Eddie, Eddie, I need two. I need two tickets for." tomorrow's World Series game against the Yankees. You know, I, the guy found the ball here, and here it is. You know, he, all he wants is two tickets. And my dad said, okay, put him on a chair with those other balls. <laughs> <laughs> and the question, you know, this miracle ball is a book about that. What happened to the ball? And uh, if it if it did come back in the clubhouse, and um, it, you know, it went in the ball bag and was probably used for batting practice the first game of the World Series. But there's, there's all kinds of theories of what happened to that ball. But I want to go back a minute to the, the last minute uh, after the last out at the end of the 1957 season, Sam, which would kind of wrap up your your two decades there. I was in the, I was in the dugout, and Doc Bowman, who was the trainer and, and was, was my watcher, uh, was my kind of a godfather in the uh, dugout because my dad couldn't be there. He was in the clubhouse. Just to make sure I didn't screw up as a bad boy. He said, okay, this is going to be wild, Eddie. You stick by me and take your hat off. And the minute the last out, uh, he says, uh, we're going to run across the field because the fans are going to go wild, and the first thing I'll do is grab your hat. I said, okay. And, uh, and we did, and we ran away. Well, the pictures of that, when I mentioned it up at the Hall of Fame, they went back in the archives, and they found the pictures going and coming. And running towards the clubhouse is Bobby Thompson, Willie Mays, and in the background you can, you can kind of see Doc and I. But I'll never forget that. Then we got in the um, clubhouse, and the place went wild outside. They tore up everything, you know, on the field, and they had big signs, uh, stay, stay, and stone them, this and that. Years later, when I was on Okinawa, uh, I, I, AFRTS, the, the uh, military radio, played a uh, great moments in sports clip, and I had forgotten I was interviewed in the clubhouse, and sure enough, I was on that, you know. Oh, wow. Right at that moment. I never was able to get that disc or, or a copy of that. Uh, maybe we can we can look at that sometime, Mo. Um, yeah, try, try to hunt it down. Because um, you have in that DVD a couple of uh, interviews with, uh, you know, that happened in the clubhouse that day. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Mine, mine was in there somewhere. I just know who has it, you know. Hmm. So am I right you guys played the Pirates that day? We played the yes. Pirates, and the picture is, um, you know, the Pirates going up up the stairs uh, on on the other side, and Roberto Clemente is clearly in the picture. Well, that's, that's great. 
Now, and I'm going all the way back uh, to, to the beginning. Uh, you know, when when I, I, me being a Mets fan, I always jumped to Charlie Samuel, who got arrested for some of his uh, his wrongdoings as clubhouse manager for the New York Mets. So uh, I, you know, hearing some stuff uh, about his duties, I was like, oh, I, I didn't know too much about what a clubhouse manager does. So in terms of your father's duties and your grandfather's duties with the Yankees, what are some of the the job the the jobs of a clubhouse manager? Okay. Um, first of all, they manage all the uniforms, all the equipment, um, food and drinks and so forth. Uh, tobacco, chew tobacco. I'm talking about back then, and I'll tell you the difference now because I just talked to Mike Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, cleaning all the uniforms, assigning the numbers, and this is interesting because. Uh, Famous 24 was a number my dad signed, assigned to Willie Mays and, and several others that, you know, retired that were in the Hall of Fame. Also, um, he supervises the visitor's clubhouse, uh, orders, and so uh, the visiting clubhouse uh, man works for him. Um, all the tickets that the players want, um, all the baseballs, all the equipment he orders, and he travels on the road. Uh, in those days, they had trunks. He had to, uh, and the Giants had a truck, and they did a lot of their own shipping. But um, he had to do all that, make sure the uh, the hotels and the aircraft, uh, the flights were all booked. Although um, the, the secretary did some of it, but Dad actually carried it out on the road. So he knew all the other clubhouses, or clubbies they call them, uh, around the league, and essentially moved the team. You know. Uh, around the league and then back to the clubhouse. So, and he was uh, the guard at the door, you know. He's, uh, nobody got in the clubhouse uh, without him saying so. And I hired the bad boy, so that obviously is how I got hired, although I had yeah. been there since I was five. And uh, he was the major domo, you know, and everybody went to the clubhouse manager. Sometimes they call him the clubhouse custodian, sometimes they call, call him the equipment manager, but he's basically the clubhouse manager. Now, talking to Mike, he said, oh, yeah, we don't do that anymore. We contract everything out. Every, all the moving of the, the uniforms is all done by uh, a contractor. Hmm. And he's got it made compared to what my dad did. My dad was just, you know, blue collar. He had to sweep the play. Anything from to, you know, getting the uniforms assigned. Now, now speaking of the uniforms, you and I were talking about all the different types of Giants uniforms that, that they had between 1937 and 1957 in terms of design. Uh, and I remember reading a story about Charlie Samuel going to the Mets clubhouse manager, how he basically was in, uh, maybe not in charge of the design of those those uh, late 90s Mets uniforms where they added the shadow, which is a whole other story for a whole other day about my, uh, uh, my detest for that. Um, but he that, that was his idea. He was in charge of, of the, the different types of uniforms that they wear. Um, did your dad have anything to do with uh, go with, with with the different designs that the Giants ended up having in the time that I'm covering? Yes, he did, and he worked closely with uh, with the uniform maker, who at that time was uh, Tim McAuliffe from Boston. McAuliffe made most of the uniforms, and I remember going up uh, over holidays and 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 visiting with McAuliffe when I was a little kid. Whenever we'd go to Boston, and then we were we were playing the Boston Braves. You know, people forget a long time ago. And uh, 
they they yeah they talk about designs all the time and numbers and and you know it, it, it was always trying to fit somebody there was always new people coming in and you had to measure them and you know it was the whole thing just handling equipment never mind you manage a clubhouse like you manage a golf course or a country club right he's responsible for everything and not only that but my grandfather got Harry M Stevens started the 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 uh, concessionaire who had not only the polo grounds in the Yankee Stadium, but a lot of the racetracks around New York. There's a whole story back when he was just starting, and my, my grandfather got him into the clubhouse and over into the stadium. So um, needless to say, uh, anything my dad wanted from Harry, he got. I hear a... Can you hear that noise? If it's a siren, then it's my siren. That, that, that's me adding a little uh, unique New York perspective. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, Police sirens yeah, and sirens. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, um, obviously, you know, we've gone a half hour without really talking about the, the Dodgers uh, outside of the shot heard around the world. And, yeah. of course, that's the angle that I'm going for. So right. I, I, I guess first, let me ask you, what is your earliest memory of the Brooklyn Dodgers and then any story you can tell regarding going out to Ebbets Field? Well, the Dodgers were, were the biggest draw. Giants-Dodgers game that we were so out to. But they were the enemy. They, I mean, they were really the enemy. And, you know, we had uh, Leo DeRocher, who, of course, had come from the Dodgers. And I remember uh, Jackie Robinson. I did, never met him, but... Uh, uh, Leo's big deal was Jackie would slide into bases with his spikes up. You know, we, they played hard. Mm-hmm. So I remember going out to Ebbets Field as well, riding the subway with my dad. It was like ever out there. It was like a foreign nation. They, you know, we were the city. They were a town. Brooklyn was, uh, you might as well have been on the moon. You know, they, <laughs> that was a whole different thing. And um, it was serious. It was serious. I remember big 4th of July uh, Giant Dodger games. Yeah, we seem to. And remember, there was one time when uh, somebody got shot in the stand. Some kid was up over in Cougar's Bluff and and had a rifle. And then they, they would drop cherry bombs off the uh, upper deck. Uh, uh, I mean, it was it was so. But that's my essential memory of them. It was. It was they might as well have been a you know a, a, a totally out of the city team. Mm-hmm. That's remarkable, though, because I've never heard about the the story about somebody getting shot from the apartments of Coogan's Bluff, and it's a little eerie talking about uh, November 20th, 22nd, 1963, and also talking about uh, somebody getting shot from uh, the Coogan's uh, Bluff. Uh, as so, I remember, so you, you, mm-hmm. yeah, I was on the field because it was slightly before the game, and uh, it hit in the upper deck uh, on the right field side, I mean the left field side. And I didn't know it till later. I said, gee, you know, I was out there shagging flies, you know, when that happened. Right. Now, do you remember what year that might have been? Early 50s. Um, I would say somewhere 51, 52. Okay. Uh, it was all over the papers, so that, that's something we, we can research. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to certainly uh, try, you know, because the New York Times has access to most of their archives uh, if you pay. Uh, I mean, you could pull up the the shortened version of it, just the the abbreviated version, if you're not paying. Um, but you know, I I do have a digital subscription, so that's something I'll be able to pull up. Um, so uh, you mentioned yeah, I, 
You mentioned the uniforms, too, and uh, Mike bring up the fact that uh, the Giants had red, white, and red, white, and blue uniforms and then went to the, uh, the orange and uh, black in, what, 47 or so. But the first time that the orange and black made an appearance was in the early 30s, correct? Correct. Okay. Okay. They so went then to they... Red, white, and, and, and the first uniform I had as a five-year-old or four-year-old, I have a picture of it somewhere with my grandma, uh, it was the red, white, and blue. And that's when um, when they, I was in the stands in back of uh, the dugout as a little little tiny kid, and uh, one of my family members, an aunt or an uncle, during the game put me over the, um, you know, over the gate on the field and told me to run and go see Daddy, and I ran across the field in the middle of the game to the clubhouse. And that's been a family legend, you know, ever since. And your dad was was real upset, uh, not necessarily at you at first, but but at, you, at yeah. Who told you that? You know, I didn't know what I was doing. They just said run, you know, and I did. That's, I even, uh, that's remarkable. And the other thing was, uh, you know, we just hosted uh, Leo Derosha's son Chris here at our house for a couple of days last month. And uh, the last I remembered of him, he was only five years old on the field in the early fifties, and I was his babysitter. I was ten, and I was told to watch him. Yeah. So, uh, and I hadn't seen him since then either, and he's 68 now. Well, speaking of Leo DeRocher, you have a great story about uh, the gambling he would do. Oh, yeah. Well, the old-time players were uh, hard drinkers, hard smokers, and card players, and they played the horses. And it's funny now when you look at all this business about Pete Rose and the signs in the clubhouse, no gambling, no phone calls because they thought people would, you know, bet on the game or call out of the clubhouse. But um, the story goes, and it's Sal, Sal Evars was a, the third-string catcher for the Giants, and he he was interviewed uh, a couple of years ago before he died. And uh, there's a there's a DVD about that interview on a local local uh, talk show somewhere in New York, uh, Yonkers, I think. Anyway, he tells the story that the Giants were in Chicago, and they were they were not doing well, and uh, Leo had a team meeting, a closed-door team meeting. So my, my dad gets a phone call, and he bangs on the doors, and uh, George says, get out of here, Logan, Dad, don't bother, we, we, this is a serious meeting. And Dad said, no, 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 you know, you you have to listen to this. So Leah says, what do you want? He said, well, a uh, guy just called, we had a tip on uh, races, uh, the Chicago uh, horse racing, whatever the, the, you know, the stadium was. So... Long story short, Leo says, okay, how are we going to do this? So he passes a paper bag around, everybody puts money in, and he sends Sal Evars to the racetrack in uniform, and they <laughs> win. He brings back like three bags of cash. <laughs> <laughs> That's just something that I'm fairly certain could you'd never see happen in a, a major league clubhouse today. Perhaps. No, you're kidding. The, you know, the president of the National League could go bananas, you know. This doesn't happen, but they play here. And I rode on the trains, too. People forget. Um, we didn't start flying until uh, about 51, 52. And uh, when I was a kid, Dad took me everywhere before I was a bat boy. I went on, on numerous trips. And I rode back on the train, and, and that's all the guys would do, play cards the whole time from Chicago to New York. And then, uh, uh, I remember the first plane trip, um, it was – an aircraft called, a company called Capital Air, and they had Viscount planes, you know, four propeller Viscounts out of uh, 
um, LaGuardia. And that was my first plane ride. I was about, oh, 10, I guess. What would you feel? What did you think? Well, I thought it was great. And then when I graduated uh, music and art in late June of 58, um, the team was in town playing Philadelphia, and my dad came up to the graduation, which was in Carnegie Hall. And then I flew back uh, with the team to San Francisco, and they had a new 707. And to show you how different it was, um, I was allowed to sit up in the cockpit with, with, with the pilots all the way to almost just before landing. And they said, no, okay, you got to sit down now. But and, and I could see San Francisco, you know, for the first time, the Pacific Ocean for the first time. Oh, that's a that's what they story. did. Yeah, and then another thing that would never happen today. And and there was certainly a little bit more of a uh, leniency before 9-11, but obviously 9-11 changed everything. Uh, but yeah. going back, don't want to go off on a, on a 9-11 tangent. Uh, going all the way back to the shot heard around the world, I wanted to get your perspective on it um, because I know you weren't at the game that day. I wasn't at the game. I was 10 years old. I was home in the Bronx in the uh, hybrid section of the Bronx, which about 170th and University kind of overlooks the Harlem River and not that far from from the pole grounds. A bike ride, easy bike ride. And I had actually I was I was painting one of my old bikes listening to the radio. Well, first thing I did was, because my mom was working, was jump on the bike and, and go down to the pole ground. Well, I never got past, really, the front door. The huge crowd outside, and um, I couldn't get in the clubhouse. So I had to come back. But uh, what was going on was Dad was, in the midst of all that jubilation, having to pack the trunks to go across the river to start the World Series the next day against the Yankees. It was that fast. And also, uh, his oldest sister, my Aunt Marie, had just died. So he was juggling that and, you know, the winning and the losing and, and, and getting over for the next day. And he never, I don't, he didn't come home until 2 in the morning, something like that. And, uh, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was you know, uh, uh, like, the, like the, uh, the sad face and the happy face you see in the, in the Broadway theater. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's okay, so it was either the first or second World Series game. Uh, it would have to have been on a, on a Saturday or Sunday because I was, you know, home from school. I went to the game, and there's a, not a famous picture, but there's a very good UP photo of my dad and I in the Giants' dugout coming up on the steps after Al Dark hits a home run and he's coming around, and we have our hands out, um, you know, to congratulate him. And uh, there I am, a little Giants jacket, and I had my little thick glasses on <laughs> as a kid, and my dad is in a, you know, an old T-shirt. That's the way they dressed back then, you know. Yeah. Working man's clothes. Well, you, you look at uh, Mike Murphy today, he's got this spiffy, SF, you know, SF Giants golf shirt, and it's a whole different thing. So, uh there I was. I, you know, I didn't make the, the shot heard around the world, but I was there for the first or second game of the World Series. And Steve Rothschild found that photo for me and sent it to me, so I'm going to put that onto the website later, or Facebook, everybody, uh, for those of listening, and, and follow on www.facebook.com backslash Bedford and Sullivan, Brooklyn. And uh, uh, I, I'm just flipping this. I, I had a specific thing that I was going to ask you, but I'm just flipping on it. Um, 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Your father was also the football Giants clubhouse manager as well, right? Yes, he was the football, the New York football Giants. There was a football Yankees at one time, um, and he had mm-hmm. something to do with what my grandfather did before he died. But and and the football, football Dodgers as well, and they faced each other on December 7th, 1941 at the Polo Grounds. Yes, and you know, the Polo Grounds had not only football, they had all kinds of crazy things. They had, they had Irish football, they had race cars, they had, I, I saw Rocky Marciano fight there several times. And what would happen when the Giants were out of town, they would uh, lease that out to all sorts of things. And the uh, visitor's clubhouse manager, uh, George Natriano, who I was called Uncle George, worked for my dad, he would take over, you know, the home clubhouse and, uh, and run that for whoever the guests were. And one time Frank Sinatra was in there. He came to see the fight. And so it was, it was exciting. I mean, there was all kinds of things going on besides baseball. But anyway, back to football. I used to, it was always on a Sunday, and Leo DeRocher's office, which was really nice and I had total access to in the, in the baseball uh, season, was the towel room for the football. Mountains of towels. I used to play in there and build uh, forts and so forth. But the football players and that, that whole um, atmosphere was, totally different than baseball. They they were gruff, no nonsense, didn't know any of the players. Um, uh, even my dad didn't. Uh, he was there and he was in the background. Whereas in baseball, it was a daily thing. Everybody knew it was a family thing. We played a lot more games. And the same thing I mentioned that Dodgers were the enemy. So were the Yankees, but we didn't play them. We, we only played them in the World Series. So, you know, we hated them, but we didn't play them that often. Yeah, the Dodgers, uh, you played 22 times a year, as well as the rest of the league, when they were only eight teams. And it was a sellout every time. I mean, the Dodgers-Giant game atmosphere was electric. It was just electric. Every pitch, people were, like, standing up. I mean, I remember it. It was almost, you, know, you almost couldn't stand it, you know, it was that, that electric. And, of course, the papers, you know, Daily News, there was a front, there's always, you know, the front page, Giant Dodgers rivalry. And yeah. to some great extent, that still exists on the West Coast. Um, but not as much because it's two different cities. Right. Well, Larry King put it perfectly uh, when it came to, uh, I was talking to Larry King about uh, the Cardinals-Dodgers series, which was beginning the evening that I was talking to him. And he said about the Cardinals' Uh, Dodgers rivalry, he said it's a rivalry of respect. It's not a hate rivalry like Yankees, like Yankees Red Sox. It's not a hate rivalry like Dodgers Giants. It's a rivalry of respect, and I think he pretty much nailed it with that, especially yeah. just hearing all the stories about when they were in the same city. Uh, I can only imagine and, and hear all the stories and try to uh, surmise uh, creatively what that was like. Now, we don't have too much time left. Uh, we have only about two minutes left, but I want to bring uh, Mo on here just for a last word. I do this on another podcast that I host, which is the last word. And Ed will obviously have you on uh, many, many more times. We have so much more to talk about. Uh, but Mo, let me get your last word regarding Ed and the Giants. Sorry, Mo. Am I on? Yes, Mo. <laughs> okay, very good. So, uh, what was the question now? Uh, can you give us one last word? Uh, one last word. Last one game last at the Polo Grounds, 29th, 1957. I was the last guy out. <laughs> <laughs>
There you go. And all the turmoil. I was, it's on the film, too. I was the last guy out of the stadium. So, that's and, it. And, Perry, let me get your last word. Eddie, I would like to thank you for your long and meritorious service to our country and for just giving all of us Giants fans so much joy and happiness because you are our link, our living link, to what we would only know about by reading or seeing on film. But you are the flesh and blood embodiment of all that that we love so much. And I just wanted to thank you for that very, very much. And you, Sam, for having Ed as a guest on your show. Absolutely. That's so sweet, Barry. Thank you. Boy, I second that one. Yeah, I I second uh, all of it. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have too much time left, so I I have to end the show. But thank you all for joining us. Thanks to the listeners for listening in and uh, very much appreciate it. Have a great one, everybody. And I... I, uh, believe we're going to be on one more time before Thanksgiving, so I will not wish everybody yet a happy Thanksgiving. Have a good one, everybody. Okay. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.